Father, we thank you for life and breath and for the mercies that are new for us this morning. We pray that we would not take those mercies for granted, that we would not take you for granted, that we would see you in all things, that we would know that you are not only creator, but you are also sustainer, and that in your Son, Christ, we have life and we have breath. And God, we pray that you would fill us this morning with faith, hope, and patience as we await for his return. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You can get out a sheet, the sheet in front of you, or you can get out your Bible. We're going to be in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. If you're just now with us, uh, you can dive in at any time in this study. We are looking at encounters with Jesus. That is, uh, these very uh, popular, especially if you grew up in the church, famous stories about Christ's interaction with people during his life and ministry. The story we're going to look at this morning, I would argue, is not just familiar for those who've grown up in church, but even those who have not grown up in church have likely heard of Lazarus. And that is both a good and a bad thing for us this morning as those who are part of a church, if that describes you. It is possible for you to think as you approach a story like this that you know everything there is to know about it. But I think what you'll find this morning is there is so much here and we have a lot of ground to cover. And so I invite you, get out your Bible, uh, get out that sheet in front of you with the text. I will not read it ahead of time uh, for the sake of time because it's so long, but we will look at every single verse just about. Uh, So go ahead and get it out. John chapter 11 is where we'll be. Uh, Last week, I learned a new word. My wife and I were attending a lecture given by Nashville uh, novelist and songwriter Andrew Peterson, and he was talking about the creative process for him, what it's like for him to try to create something new, whether it's a song or a novel. And he began to talk about this word, eucatastrophe. Anybody heard of the word eucatastrophe before? I certainly had not. And it comes from a lecture given by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's a word that he made up to describe the elements of every good story and what he strove for when he tried to write something new, eucatastrophe. So the word uh, that he made up, right, he, he just invented it. Think of the word catastrophe, right, something bad, terrible, awful. And he put you in front of it, E-U. It's Greek for good. So in other words, it's a good catastrophe. And what Tolkien argued in this uh, lecture was that any good story has a redemptive twist at the end. And as you follow the story along, things go from bad to worse. And then that worse becomes even more terrible, more awful. And the longer that you go into the story, the more tension builds as things get worse and worse and worse, and you think, how can this end? Until right at the end, there's a turn. And suddenly, everything is made right. The hero is delivered, and you get this glimpse of joy. So if you're wondering what this looks like, uh, an example, there's probably no better example than this than in the words of Sam Wise himself. So if you're a two, tor- uh, two Towers or Lord of the Rings fan or geek, uh, whatever word you want to use. Um, This is Sam. Okay, I want you to listen to this. Sam talking to Frodo. 
He says, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. Sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. All right, so maybe you're not a Tolkien geek. Maybe you're a Christopher Nolan fan. And you know the Dark Knight trilogy, right? Batman. Just think of Harvey Dent giving a press conference, talking about Batman. Why should we protect the Batman? Are you with me? Or are you like, no, that's just another category of nerddom that I'm just not a part of. <laughs> um, Harvey Dent says this. He says, the night is darkest before the dawn. And I promise you, dawn is coming. Tolkien said this phenomenon, this catastrophe is where we get this glimpse of joy, joy that is poignant as the grief that we currently are experiencing. And what I want to put before you this morning and before me as well as, as I teach is that Lazarus and his story is the perfect you catastrophe. Things get from bad to worse until right at the end, Lazarus is delivered. But what's so remarkable about the story of Lazarus is John gives us the perspective, not just of those who loved and grieved Lazarus when he died, Mary and Martha, but he gives us the perspective of God himself and the person of Jesus Christ. We get the perspective of his timing, his own sorrow, his own grief, and his own knowledge of what he is about to do, even though Mary and Martha have no idea. And in the end, what I want us all to see is that ultimately the story of Lazarus is our own story. That the reality is each one of us, wherever you are coming from this morning, you are in the middle of your own you catastrophe. And the question is, where is God in the middle of that for you? Can you see him? Are you wrestling with him? Do you question his love for you because of what is going on in your life or what has happened in the past? All of this is before us this morning. I want to begin with this. In the story of Lazarus and his eucatastrophe, we see the love of Christ in our own suffering. The love of Christ in our own suffering. I'm going to begin with verse 1. John tells us that there was a certain man who was ill, gravely ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany. Uh, This is a village about two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, We're told that this is a village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. In other words, so here's Mary and Martha, two well-known women um, in Jesus' circle who have a brother whose name is Lazarus, and he is sick. Uh, Even his name, Lazarus, You could translate it really one of two ways, depending on how you take it. It could mean God helps, or you could argue that it means there is no help. There is no help. And it's almost a play on words, his name. Um, God helps, or this is a man who had no help. And so the sisters, Mary and Martha, go to Jesus and they say, Lord, He whom you love is ill. So the first time the word love is mentioned in this passage. It's going to be mentioned again. 
They come to Jesus and they say, look, Lazarus is your friend. We know that you love him. And so we've come to tell you that he is sick, gravely ill. And you wonder at this point with what Mary and Martha have seen in Jesus' ministry, what they know him to do, what do you think they're trying to get Jesus to do? This isn't just a point of information for Jesus. Mary and Martha are not coming to Christ and saying, look, we just wanted you to know. We just wanted you to be aware. No, they're expecting Jesus to do something about it, especially because he loves Lazarus, right? Especially because he loves them. Jesus, we're we're, we're telling you, like your friend Lazarus, he's going to die. We need you to do something. Jesus says in verse 4, he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, like much of this passage, we just don't have time to do every passage justice. But I want you to hear what Jesus just said. And depending on where you are with God this morning, you might take this a different way. Jesus just said Lazarus's sickness was for the glory of God. Now, this morning, if you find yourself wrestling, as we will see Mary and Martha do in a second, with God and his love for you, his goodness, because of your circumstance, because you've seen suffering in your life in the past, or perhaps you're even suffering now, or you have a loved one who is suffering and you're questioning his goodness, then as you hear that, you might be thinking, how can that be? How can you say that? How how can somebody's suffering be for God's glory? But if there's a small part of you that is still holding on to faith, holding on to hope, you see that there's great intentionality and great purpose in everything that we experience, even our suffering. So what I want you to see this morning is that our own human suffering does not disprove that God loves us It's actually evidence that he does love us. Let me show you what I mean. It goes on. We're told again, verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, did you just catch that? He heard that Lazarus was ill. We're told again that he loves Lazarus, he loves Martha, he loves Mary. And because he loves them so much, here is Jesus two miles away from Bethany. Upon hearing that Lazarus is sick, because he loves Mary and Martha, what does he do immediately? He stays right where he is. Did you catch it? He loved Mary and Martha, so he stayed where he is. Two miles away. How is that a display of his love? How is that a display of his affection? How how is that a display of his goodness? That doesn't immediately drop everything and go to where Lazarus is, is at his bedside and heal him immediately. How could he do that? We'll talk more about that in a second. We're told later of verse 7 that after this, he tells his disciples that it's time to go to Judea again. It's time now for him to go to Bethany. 
His disciples don't want him to do it because he's just left there and he knows, they know that this could be really, really bad. Um, they know that this is, you know, he was, they could be stoned there. There's great persecution that could await them there. But Jesus tells them, verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So here's Jesus. He knows at this point, not because anybody's told them, but because he is God, because he's divine. He knows that now Lazarus has died. And he waits until Lazarus dies to then go back to his bedside. Why? Because he loved Lazarus and because he loves Mary and Martha, and ultimately because he loves you and me. He wants to display that he is powerful in any and all circumstances, even when you think that it's gotten so bad that even God himself cannot intervene. Which is a point that we all reach where our faith just kind of runs out. For them, they believed that Jesus could do something as long as Lazarus was just sick. But look, if Lazarus dies, then there's nothing that God himself can do. There's nothing that Jesus can do. That's what is in the back of their mind. Maybe they don't say it, but they feel it. I wonder, have you ever felt that before? Where something has gotten so bad that you begin to question, God, are you even there? If you are there, then how can you be good? How can you be loving? There are those who've tried to explain this away by saying, well, maybe God just isn't control, right? Maybe he just isn't powerful. He doesn't know that bad things are going to happen. And so look, it's not his fault. It's a heresy called open theism. It's convenient because it gets, gets God off the hook for bad things that happen. But I would argue that it is of no help because then all you get is a God who's not in control. And if he is not in control of our sickness, of our pain, of the hardship and the suffering that we face, then he's not of control of getting us out of it. And he's not of control of being able to seek redemption even in the midst of it. What we see in Jesus throughout this entire display, is that there's great purpose in what he is doing. And that all of this is driven, not in the absence of his love, but because of his love for us. Even himself in his own suffering, as he wrestled with it himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. Why? Because he loved you, because he loved me. Second thing I want us to look at in the story of Lazarus, this great eucatastrophe. The second thing is that there is care in Christ in our waiting. That as we wait on the Lord, it's not because we are waiting on a God who's not doing anything. But he is intentionally working on our behalf because he cares for us. We see that care in Christ. Verse 14. Jesus tells his disciples plainly, they think, okay, he just fell asleep, I guess. And he says, no, look, Lazarus died. Notice what he says, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. (laughs) Not only does Jesus wait until Lazarus dies to go back to Bethany, 
But he says he's glad that he wasn't there. He's glad that he could not have intervened. He's glad that he could not have healed Lazarus before he died. Why? He says, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. Right? There's great care. There's great intentionality to what he is doing. Though at this point, people are waiting, most notably Mary and Martha, they're waiting for Christ to come, and he's not coming, at least not on their timing. Jesus is doing it intentionally. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, he says, let us go so that we may die with him. The hymn there is Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is, look, if we go back to this area where we could be stoned, we, we know that whatever's going to happen to Jesus is going to happen to us. So it's this moment of faith, even for Thomas, who will later doubt, saying, look, uh, we'll go with him. And if Jesus dies, we die, but we are going with him. So they go back. They go back to where Lazarus is in Bethany. We see great purpose in waiting. Verse 17, we're told that when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, this is significant. Just as significant as Jesus being in the tomb for three days. There were many in those days, uh, particularly Jewish rabbis, who believed that the spirit of a person who died would linger. It would hover. It wouldn't yet go away from the body. And that this spirit would linger for three days. For three days. And so for Lazarus to have now been entombed for four days meant two things. One, that his spirit was gone. That he was as dead as dead could be. That there was no hope at this point for Lazarus, at least in their religious minds. The spirit was gone. But not only that, we know in this dry and warm, arid climate, that bodies begin to decompose very quickly. It's why in their culture they would bury people the same day they died. They would try to prepare their bodies as quickly as possible and put them in the tomb. Why? Because in the heat, bodies would begin to decompose. So both religiously they think Lazarus is dead after four days, the spirit is gone. But, but just in their experience, right, medically speaking, that after four days, the body has already started the decomposition process. Lazarus is dead. He is dead as dead could be. And so verse 18, we're told that Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So the people are now coming uh, from all over, right, for a funeral. Right? They're gathering, they're, come, they're coming to mourn. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Here's where I want you to begin to visualize this. And maybe you've experienced this in your own life or you've seen this in family members, but if you can remember the last time a family member or a friend has died and what grieving looked like and how it was different for a lot of different people, yet just as painful. And you see this in Martha. You see this in Mary. We're told that as they grieve, as they are taking this, I want you to imagine what must be in the midst of their emotions. They went to their Lord, Jesus, expecting Him to do something. Expecting Him to prevent the death of their brother. And yet He didn't. And now here they are mourning. 
They hear now that Jesus has finally come. What do you think is in their minds? Okay, now you're here. Now you've come. Not only did you not come when we asked you, not only did you not come before Lazarus died, but now he has been dead for four days when absolutely nothing can be done. And so we're told Mary stayed in the house. Why do you think that is? We can only speculate. But she hears that Jesus is there, and she stays in the house. But Martha runs after him. See, I think there's two types of people, and this is, I know, a very broad brush. But as we wrestle with our own faith when tragedy strikes, when the midst of suffering, there are those of us who we, we, we run. We run from God. Because wrestling with Him and the reality that what we wanted was not what He had for us is too difficult to bear. There's others of us, though, that run straight to Him, but not necessarily with a bended knee. <laughs> right? It's fight or flight. We run to Him and we're like, all right, God, we're going to have a talk. <laughs> and I demand to know an answer. I want to know, where were you? We see that in Martha. Martha comes to Jesus. Notice what she says, verse 21. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? Where were you? If you would have been here, Lazarus would be alive. Notice what's in the midst of that statement. It is both pain Sorrow, perhaps even anger, but there's also faith. Do you see it? Lord, where were you? But in the same breath, because I know if you were here, I have the faith to believe that my, my brother would still be alive. Right? She's wrestling. It's not that she doesn't believe that Jesus is the Christ. She's questioning, because he is the Christ, what are you doing? And so often that's where we find ourselves, isn't it, brothers? When we face suffering, when we face hardship, what we come out on the other side is not that we don't believe in God anymore. We're questioning His character, who He is. We believe. But then we say, help our unbelief. Right? It's a wrestle. This is not binary. Faith. On or off, ones and zeros. It's messier than that. We see that in Martha. Notice what she says next, verse 22. She says, but even now, I know that whatever you, Jesus, ask from God, God will give you. I'm coming to you with my sorrow, with my pain, being upset even with you, Jesus. Where were you? If you would have been here, my brother would still be alive. Yet I know that whatever you ask of God, he's going to give you. It's faith mixed with grief, mixed with sorrow, mixed with even anger itself. So what does she do? Well, she's waiting in the midst of faith mingled with sorrow. And we see this in just a second as Jesus now responds and he says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he sh yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Where do you go in the midst of suffering? Where do you place your hope when you are waiting? When you don't see God doing the things that you are praying him to do, and the more that you pray, you wonder, is he even there? With every unanswered prayer, where do you go? You go to this unbelievable yet amazing truth that even in the midst of the waiting of Mary and Martha, Christ was there. He delayed purposefully so that he could display one thing to you and to me, that he is the resurrection and the life, that all who believe in him will not die, but will live forever with God. Brothers, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe in the resurrection? Not just because we're supposed to as Christians, not just because that's what we check in the box of the list of essentials when it comes to our faith, not just because you've grown up in this city or in this part of the country. Do you really believe that you will live forever in the presence of God because he died and he rose again for you? That is the hope we have in the midst of all things, that one day we will rise again too. And everything that he is doing with Lazarus, he is doing for you and for me, for Mary and for Martha, for Lazarus, for our benefit, that we would see that he has the power over death itself. The third thing I want to look at is that even in the midst of all of this, what he knows he is about to do, even though he knows that he is delaying on purpose, that we would see the truth and the hope that we have in the resurrection, that doesn't mean that he is not aloof or unaware that this side of the resurrection for us, this side of heaven, life can be very difficult. So the third thing I want to look at is that there is sorrow. We see the sorrow of Christ, even in our own sadness. Verse 28, then we see the response of Mary. Martha goes and runs to him. She says, where were you? Right? Where were you? If you would have been here, right, you would not have died. Mary says the same thing, but in her own way. So she now hears that Jesus now is calling for her. He's not going to let her just wallow in her grief. He's not going to just leave her alone, but he pursues her. He's calling for her. So she hears that Jesus has called for her, so now she goes to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, verse 31, were consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a different kind of emotion. You see this just brokenness in her. We see verse 33, this, this brokenness so well. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also were weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So Jesus sees Mary weeping. He sees now the others who had gathered to mourn Lazarus' death and they are weeping. And John tells us that he was moved in his spirit 
and greatly troubled. In the Greek, it means that he was angry. The kind of wailing and weeping that comes with a hint of anger. He's righteously indignant. And the question we should be asking ourselves is if Jesus knows what he is about to do. And we know that that's true because the whole story is told that way from the very beginning, verse 1. That Jesus knows what he is about to do. That he has allowed Lazarus to die. He knows he is about to rise him up from the dead then why would he be angry about it? What's more, and this is a very, very famous verse, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, where have you laid laid him, Lazarus? They said, Lord, come and see. And then we have the very famous, shortest verse, right? Two words, Jesus wept. He sees the weeping of Mary and Martha. He becomes full of righteous indignation. And not only that, but then he begins to weep himself. Why does he weep? If he knows what he's about to do, if he knows that Lazarus will live again, why does he weep? Because even in the knowledge that he has that Mary and Martha don't, even though he knows what he's about to do, he is not aloof. He's not cold and calculated. He knows that this is painful for Mary and Martha. He knows this is painful for everybody who's gathered to mourn, and he knows that it's painful for you and for me. So the writer of Hebrews says that we have this great high priest. I want you to hear this. A great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Yes, Christ is sovereign. Yes, He is good. Yes, He has foreknowledge. He knows what He's about to do. But He knows our hearts. And He knew the heart of Mary and Martha. He wept with them, not just with them, But I believe he was weeping because he saw the heinous effects of sin. That because sin has overwhelmed this world that he had made, that he had made, that brokenness had come with it. And death, which was never God's intention, has entered the world as a consequence for the fall. And brokenness and disease is all around us. And I believe Jesus sees that. He saw it then, he sees it now. And it makes him weep. That's why he weeped over Jerusalem before he went to the cross. Last thing, and where we're going to end. Like any good catastrophe, it's gotten worse, hadn't it? It started out where Lazarus was just sick. He was ill. It was serious. Then he died. Okay, now it's even a bigger deal. But with each passing day that he was in the tomb, now it's four days. It's gotten from bad to worse. It's impossible. There is nothing that can be done. Verse 38, Jesus, we see, was deeply moved. He came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Again, I want you to see the complexity of faith. She believes, she just said she did, 
that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. And yet in this moment, what does she expect? Like any normal, rational person, that the body's still there. It's not that she doesn't believe that in Christ, she just doesn't think that he can do what he says he can do. Right? She's questioning that, especially at this point when she's asked him and he has not delivered. So she says, look, there's going to be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Even in this, that you will see the glory of God, even in this pain, even in the sorrow. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I think that you have heard, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Why is he doing all of this? So that they would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of, that we, 2,000 years later, upon hearing this story, would believe that he is the Christ, he is the Son of the living God, he is the resurrection and the life. We're told, verse 33, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I wonder what that must have sounded like at this point to Mary and Martha. And what they saw next, verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind them, let him go. It's an amazing story. It's a powerful story. Powerful story of faith, of grief, of doubt, and of deliverance. And in the end, we see the supreme glory and majesty of, cross, of Christ and His authority over all things, even death. We see a picture of His own majesty and authority over death that will one day come when He dies on the cross and on the third day He rises again. He is the resurrection of life. But as we end this morning, what I want you to wrestle with at your tables is this, that this story is our story too. This story is our story too. The eucatastrophe of Lazarus points to our own eucatastrophe. Tolkien himself said that the eucatastrophe of human history is the incarnation. That as things got from bad to worse, suddenly Christ came in the person of a little baby born in a manger. Then the eucatastrophe of the incarnation, his life, as it got bad from persecution to even death on a cross, was the resurrection. But just when they thought, as the disciples disbanded, that it could not get worse, Christ rose again on the third day. And what that means for you and I this morning is that we are now living in the middle of another eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophe of Christ's return. And though all around us it seems like it's getting from bad to worse, one day Christ will come again. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more tears, and He will make all things Where do you find your hope? Do you see that Christ is coming? He has come and he will come again. I'm going to leave you with these words from Peter. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. 
Father, we pray now that as we go to our tables, we would bring the same level of honesty to one another and to you that Mary and Martha brought to your son. That we would bear, yes, our faith, our hope that we're clinging on to, but also our doubts, also our wrestlings, our sorrow, our pain. We pray, God, that you would help us to bear with one another in these things and that we would begin to get a greater glimpse of the great joy that awaits us in the resurrection. Until that day comes, we pray, God, that you would give us every faith and every hope by the power of your Spirit and that you would help us as brothers in Christ to encourage one another to not lose sight of the resurrection and the return that awaits us in glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.